This episode of Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future is sponsored by WBEX. The 13th annual WBEX Pre-Summit by Coaching.com is now live. This event offers 40 live virtual sessions over the course of three weeks from top thought leaders in coaching and attracts 30,000 coaches, managers, and HR leaders each year. Information at Coaching.com. Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I'm delighted to have on the show today, Pamela Larday. She's a professor, coach, and founder of the Academy for Creative Coaching. Pamela, what I'm curious about is what is your latest project and how is that research impacting your current work? Oh, wow. Well, one of the latest projects that I'm working on is the concept of joy. I've been looking at the research behind joy, what's lacking, where the gaps are. And that's been really helping me decide which direction to take my own research around joy. So I have seen some Harvard Business Review articles about joy in the workplace and so forth. So it is being covered. There's a lot of work around happiness. So I'm just dissecting that difference between happiness and joy. And then I'm working on a book that will be coming out in the fall called Joyfully Single, which is motivated by my own experience of being single, but also really is a way for me to present my framework on joy and operationalize that and help people understand how joy can actually be intentional and created in our lives. What's the difference between happiness and joy? Because that's a distinction that we don't often hear. Yeah. So one of the things about happiness is that it is a response to the stimuli that we experience in the world. So we are responsive to happiness when great things happen, when there are things that you know make us feel good. There's an intersection because joy does that too. But joy also exists in the absence of that positive stimuli. So we're able to take situations that are really difficult and traumatic. If you look at any social justice movement, for example, the civil rights movement, there were moments where they created joy by singing, by having moments of celebration, and even in the midst of some of the most difficult things that they experienced. So that's what joy looks like. You're not going to see happiness in the middle of a civil rights movement, in the middle of what's going on in Ukraine or Iran, but you might find an intentional effort for joy because that's something that comes from within. That colleague of mine used to talk about it almost as a portal. So I can choose to enter that portal or not, and I'll make this connection to being single. It is a solo choice to have joy. It is not at all driven by those around me or the situation in which I find myself. Exactly. And if it was, if that was the thing that we needed to rely upon, that could be pretty devastating. If we had to rely on the stimuli of the world, I don't know if anybody has seen what's going on in the world lately, but if that was the thing we had to rely on for our livelihood and our well-being, I think we'd be in a lot of trouble. So joy is truly a gift to be able to grasp during times like this. Let's talk about this because I think many people, as we watch the news, and, and I'm hearing more and more people say, I can't watch it, I can read, I can listen, but I don't do that much either because it always feels negative. Yes. How can I still stay engaged with the world and also choose joy? That's such a good question because it doesn't happen passively. There is a lot of intention with that. I think you gave a really good strategy just now in saying that there are people who say they can't watch it. 
I used to passively have the news on all the time. I was a journalism major. That was just part of what I would do. I don't do that anymore because I can't passively absorb this information, but I still need to stay in tune with what's going on in the world. So I do read it. I will go look it up and intentionally get myself up to speed on some things that are going on. But I just make sure that my consumption of the news is no longer a passive thing, that it's something I just do with intention. When you do it with intention, do you also have an intention that I can consume this joyfully? Yes. So there is a concept that I've talked about, and it's called mental stamina. This was something that rose out of the COVID pandemic when everybody was in quarantine and there were people who struggled immensely with it and there were people who thrived in the middle of it because they used the time when they were at home to create a new reality for themselves. So, okay, I have a new routine. I'm going to get up in the morning. I'm going to go walk. I'm going to have a Zoom wine and dine with such and such at this scheduled time. So they were very intentional about how they were going to make sure their mentality and their mindset stayed up. And of course, you can't be like that 24 hours a day, but it gave you a barometer so that if you started to feel like you were sinking, you knew it because you knew that your baseline was a baseline of joy. And so whenever you do find yourself sinking, you find ways, you know what, call the friends, sit down and write, go for a walk. Knowing what those things are that stimulate your joy enables you to actively activate it. Having that mental stamina, which is the same thing as if you're running a mile, you don't always get that full mile, you know, running the whole time. But as you continue to practice it, you build that stamina and you get better. You learn the tools and the strategies. And that's how it works mentally as well. You just have to build it and get to that place. I don't think we teach this in our universities. And frankly, I don't think we teach it very often or sufficiently enough that I need to build mental stamina just like I build physical stamina. Right. That if I go to the gym every day and then sit home and do something that is not equally engaging for my brain, I'm going to be a physically fit, mentally sloppy person. (laughs) Exactly. So if we bring the news back, If we are passively consuming really depressing, hard to hear news all day long, our stamina is going to be horrible because as soon as we are personally dealing with something, we haven't built anything up to help us overcome or push through. And if there is an opportunity to engage in an emerging study, as you had asked in the beginning, what are the emerging projects? I would probably want to study how people went through COVID. And there had been some really interesting early studies But now I think we're far enough away for people to really fully reflect what happened and what were my coping mechanisms in getting through there. And when I had the hardest days, what was the struggle about? What was I lacking? So that would be intriguing. How did you do it? You're a person who studies joy. How did you navigate COVID? I turned this house into, it sounds silly, but a house of joy. (laughs) During this time, it was primarily myself and my 16, well, she's now 16. So what was she, 13 back then? Your old daughter. We had a housemate who was renting a room. So all of a sudden, the three of us are stuck here. And, you know, we have to figure out how we're going to live life. And the housemate struggled a bit with depression and anxiety. And I felt it was my responsibility to try to set the mood for the household to help her out and to help my daughter out. 
for my daughter, she's a dancer. So I turned one of the rooms into a dance room. And instead of it being the guest bedroom, we weren't going to have any guests. <laughs> so I made it a dance room. Outside, I utilized online shopping quite a bit. And so I was able to get a volleyball net. And so what I did, I tried to create a playful, joyful environment. And then the things that we already had, like TV, let's have karaoke nights. Let's go to, a for my birthday, we usually take a trip to like, I don't know, somewhere fun. We drove, we did a road trip to a cabin in the mountains where we could be secluded safely. So it was a very creative set of strategies that won't work for everybody. But my overarching recommendation around that is, what can you do with the space that you have to create a joyful environment? What I did might not be feasible for other people, but looking at what you have in your hand and what you have within your reach, what can you create? And it can get really fun trying to figure that out. I was recently in a partnership. I had been single for 18 years. So having someone living in my house was new. And the idea that we were going to be sequestered together, he went to work every day and he worked long hours and that worked for me. I had been working from home or working with clients, but often at home. And so now here's going to be this adult person in my space. As much as I love him, I didn't know if I would want to love him in person 24 hours a day, every day. <laughs> the good news is we're still together and we're really happy. But I wasn't sure that was going to be the case. And we did leverage technology, noise-canceling earphones, different rooms, different floors. We got all the stuff so we could work separately. And then we came together for meals and we walked a lot. We got online workout programs. So we did exercise routines together. Oh, that's so cool. Thank you. What I love, though, about what you said is, you know, in the beginning that you and him would go your separate ways and in, in the house and do what you need to do and then come together. You gave each other permission to do that rather than if you're not in the same room with me, you know, I'm offended or I feel neglected. But no, we still have our own separate thing going on. And we come together when we choose to come together. I think that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, he quote, went to work. It was just in the house. Yeah. Date night was going to the Costco. I never imagined that would be our opportunity to get out of the house. <laughs> so I actually was dating somebody at the time. And it was in the very beginning of everybody's terrified. We don't know what's okay, what's not okay. So we would have date nights on the porch and we would still, we would socially distance. It was so funny. I would prepare a meal, put it in the middle. He sat over here. I sat over here. And I really appreciate his level of flexibility because I have a couple of pre-existing conditions that I was just really terrified about in the beginning. So yeah, you just communicate and, and there's just got to be a lot of patience and understanding. And hopefully we won't have to do this again anytime soon. So what lessons do we take from that and apply it to our everyday lives? Thinking about how that applies to any kind of challenge that we have no control over. It's that creativity. It's that mental stamina. I don't know when this is going to end, this crisis, but I'm going to find ways to keep myself going indefinitely. Indefinitely. That's the theme that I'm drawing through both of our stories, that we found ways that worked to continue to enjoy our lives. Yes. I'm really fortunate. We have a house that's big enough that we can go into separate rooms. Right. We didn't have a lot of the challenges that other people had. I assume there were a lot of folks who have way more than we had, and they were still dreadfully unhappy. Yes, it is about what you create. 
And I sit here abundantly aware of the level of privilege that I've had going through that pandemic. And that's why my focus and my emphasis is what do you have and what can you do with what you have? Because we can't all, we don't all have the same parameters to work with. Let's go back to joy. I'm a leader. I've got a team of people. How do I help them find joy? And a supporting question to that is, is that valuable from a leadership perspective? Is that my job? The question sounds silly, but is that my role? And how does it tie to business performance? <laughs> it's such a good question because I've never had a leader ask me that question, but I wonder how many times that question would go through a leader's mind. Like, why am I responsible for people's joy? And so I think because we are a society that has moved from a place of production, manufacturing, bottom line into a society that is very much aware of the importance of wellness and well-being, and how that stimulates production in the bottom line. I think that it's important to draw that connection, that we're not just doing this to be happy and to have fun and, you know, make people feel good. We're doing this because it is about a holistic approach and a holistic approach to the whole person, a holistic approach to the organization. If an organization is going to be healthy, the people within it <laughs> need to be healthy. So if we take it from that approach, then it becomes a no-brainer. It becomes, okay, well, we need to make sure that we are doing what needs to be done for the people to be healthy. And there's a lot of ways that can happen. We can start with, from an organizational level, the benefits that are offered employees. I was at a think tank earlier this month. It was an amazing conversation. And one of the people at the table was talking about how their organization offers unlimited coaching and therapy to the employees. So not just the EAP where you get three meetings with the person, which is good, but it is an acknowledgement that we need more in-depth support at times. And so to be able to choose coaching and or therapy with a phone at your fingertips because it's an app is a huge innovation in what is available to people. And so that is one step toward helping people find their joy. So it doesn't have to be are people laughing today? Did we do some internal work development that involved play? That's not necessarily what it means to integrate joy. It means what do people need? And looking at the time that we're in, how can we help address a need that people have? And I think that app is a really great way. Creating psychological safety in the workplace, those are buzzwords that we hear all the time. But what does it mean truly to be in a workplace where you can be vulnerable, you can make mistakes, and there is support for who you are as a human being? Those kinds of things actually matter. When we talk about a, a leader helping to facilitate joy, it starts at those very basic levels. I mean, if you look at the hierarchy and needs, the basic needs are just safety and survival and nourishment. So if we can start there, we can start building upon that to getting to greater levels of joy. So it sounds like it starts with well-being, psychological safety, and as you've talked about, the mental agility mm -hmm. and making the distinction that it's not putting in ping pong tables or foosball tables. Sure. Okay. But it can't just be that. It's like when we were talking about diversity and it's like, we'll just hire a diversity officer. Okay. 
great. (laughs) But what are we going to do at the human level to make sure that people are okay so that people will even be willing to engage? And the stamina, the mental stamina, is a very different access point than comedians and games. Because one really builds my internal competence. And back to the it's internal versus external. Yes. You can send me on vacation and I can probably have a great time, but then I come back to work. Yeah. Mental stamina travels with me when I'm at work and I can walk through that portal of joy, even in a kind of a stinky meeting. I want to point out that mental stamina is our personal responsibility. That's on us. But at the same time, there's also the responsibility of the organization. So how do those two come into play? And I'll add a third, which is the leader. So I have had leaders who are living, wallowing in trauma, and they don't even know it. And what they're doing is bleeding all over everyone else. And they are not aware of it, or they just don't want to deal with it, or they believe that their personal stuff is separate from work. And it really is not. So while we can have mental stamina, and sometimes we have to have even more when we're dealing with a leader like that, it's the responsibility also of the organization to create an environment that doesn't require that much mental stamina. <laughs> yeah. That we shouldn't be on overdrive because of the place that we are working. We talk often about culture and systems. And I think to your point, building a culture that supports health mm-hmm. rather than we reward people who work 20 hours a day. Right. Because they're dedicated. They're probably really unbalanced and dedicated. And I get that all of us have had moments in time where we've had to give the extra, but that shouldn't be the norm. It shouldn't be the norm. And I saw a LinkedIn post and it said that 20 years from now, only your children will remember that you worked all of those extra hours of overtime. Nobody else is going to remember that. Your boss, your supervisor, 20 years from now, but your children will. Yeah, you know, mom, dad, they were never home. And so what really matters, and you can think about what really matters in this moment, but what's also really going to matter as we reflect back 20 years from now. Personal mental stamina. And I agree that that's my responsibility and we can have workplaces that reward. So everyone who works closely with me knows that I am have become a bit of a yoga fanatic. I leave work at the end of the day to do yoga. I come back and dinner and then I come back and work. So yeah. that happens to be my routine, not that other people should do the same thing. And it's on my business calendar, yoga. Mm -hmm. I hope that creates opportunity for everyone in the organization to say, yes, in fact, we take care of ourselves, not just Maureen takes care of herself and the rest of us, you know, have to be crazy. Right. And specifically, I got guidance from someone who said, don't put those personal things on your calendar. Just put commitment because that's personal. I don't block my calendar because I don't want it to be secret that I engage in self-care. I love it. Oh, that's beautiful. And that's one of the things that, you know, when people ask me all the time, how do you do it? How do you do it? One of the ways that I do it is exactly what you just said. So first of all, I have a three meeting rule, which everybody cannot do. So I'm not saying we all should do this, but this is what works for me. I don't accept more than three meetings in a day. And that's because I'm a writer I'm a scientist and I have to have time to dive into the research and to do the writing and to do reflections. And if I don't have time to do that, then I'm not going to be able to deliver. 
at these meetings that people want me to be at. So I carved time out in my calendar specifically for time to read, reflect, do research. But also, I also have yoga on my calendar. And by not accepting more than three meetings, it allows me time to breathe in between meetings and to be calm. So those are so essential to me. And and many people kind of scoff at, well, I wish I can only accept three meetings a day. I have a full-time job. I run two businesses. I have a podcast. I'm a mom and I write books. And yet I manage to keep my schedule down to three meetings a day. So I, I'm not saying everyone can do it, but there might be a number that works for other people that they say, you know what, I can cut it down so that I can have time to think and recharge. Back to the joy, as I consider some of my clients who are incredibly dedicated to their work, that dedication causes them to not give enough care to their own personal health. And I've watched it over time in their patients, their capacity to respond with empathy, those things that really do matter. And yet the structure of the organization, in so many cases, is not built for human health. There is a deconstruction and a reconstruction that just has to happen in some organizations that people aren't ready for, but it's so needed and things are not going to get better until that happens. I agree wholeheartedly. And we've got to be able to prove that businesses can still be successful and healthy places to work. Yes, absolutely. We see, you know, the whole great resignation that was a big thing right after COVID. A lot of that happened because of the way that businesses were handling COVID and handling the care of their employees. And many people just couldn't take it. And when they saw other organizations that were dealing with people on a human level, they gravitated into that direction. Again, another study that I think is important to have about how the difference in response to COVID and the pandemic really changed the fabric of organizations. We also did a podcast where our presenter talked about a lot of the data on topics like, yes, people have fewer connections with their colleagues, but they have better connections with their family members. So it's not that they're less connected. And certainly each person has a different situation. Yes. But your connection with your daughter and your housemate probably increased dramatically, (laughs) and it may have gone down with some of your clients. And there were people, sadly, who disappeared. That's kind of the mystery of it is, are they okay? Or did they just decide to sever the relationship? You know, there's also mystery to the whole thing as well. But it goes back to, I have to care for myself. I need to make sure that I'm good. And it's not just pointless selfishness, but it's so that I can continue to do the things that I do to serve other people. That second half of the sentence, I'm not doing this to be selfish. Every senior executive I work with, they have to be clear thinking. And exhaustion and not eating properly contributes to suboptimal thinking over time. Yes. And I love that point because when I think about what I know my capacity is for three meetings, and like I said, if if you're a coach, you're like, I make money on my (laughs) clients. Like I can't just meet with three clients a day. But whatever your capacity is, Be sure that you have something left to have that empathy, to engage in those meaningful conversations that you're not in robot mode. I have a friend that, you know, we work out together and they didn't want to work out that day, but also didn't want to be seen as a slacker. So when we got together to work out, workout was awful and they were done early and was just kind of grumpy. And I said, you know what? 
you should have gotten your sleep. You know, you don't need to come and work out. If you're exhausted, take care of yourself. We can always have a better workout at a different time. It's okay to be able to say what your needs are because it's better to have a present person than somebody who shows up grumpy and irritable and lacking emotional intelligence and all of those things. You know, as I'm listening to you, one of the things that strikes me, and it's a change I've made over time, and I would say based on feedback and a lot of learning, is so many years I spent my day running between meetings, and I'm still running between meetings. The difference is my mindset. Yeah. You know, I would come to a podcast like this and my goal was just to get through it without sounding stupid. That was my entire goal in life was to get through the meeting so I could get through the next meeting, so I could get through the next meeting, so I could, quote, get the work done as if sitting in meetings wasn't also part of the work. Right. It felt like really my goal was just to survive and not look dumb. Now I'm probably in just about as many meetings. I don't have a three meeting rule. Most people don't. <laughs> but my intention is like when we get on a podcast like this, I'll take 10 seconds before or 20 seconds or whatever to say my intention is to put out the best possible information to our listeners. I love it. And to give you a really engaging experience, that 10 seconds changes the entire dynamic of what I'm able to show up with. Yes. Now I've also had four cups of coffee today. You're speaking to the mental stamina. You're being intentional about showing up present. I offered my strategy. You find the strategy that works for you. One of the things that I was sort of a confirming for me is I am partnering with a pretty world-renowned researcher who I will not name yet, but I'm really excited about it. And we're working on a project together to put out a book. He's in the UK. And he said to me, you know, every time I show up to a meeting with you, you have so much energy. You're so joyful. You're so... And I don't even know if he was aware of my joy research. It's different than when I'm in other meetings. When I'm in other meetings, there's a noticeable difference. People are down. They're like, I don't want to be here. You're full of energy. What is it that you do? And it's funny because I don't drink coffee. <laughs> and I have people who are like, what do you mean you don't drink coffee? Where do you get your energy? It's been a lot of work and it's been a lot of intention. You have to fight for it. Like I have had to fight for the time and the freedom to be able to create a space that enables me to maintain enthusiasm and energy and joy. Do I have downtime? Absolutely. Do I ever get depressed? Yes. But again, it's about that baseline that you create for yourself so that you can be very conscious of, ooh, I'm, something's not feeling right in my body. I have days where it'll be maybe three o'clock in the day and I'm like, why do I feel sad? And I'll remember that eight o'clock in the morning, somebody I had a meeting with made a snide remark that I haven't let go of. So I notice right away when I'm falling below that baseline and then I can be strategic and intentional about resolving it. Have you worked with people with anxiety and depression, Pamela? We had a conversation recently, and if I am completely anxious, is joy still in my reach? That's such a good question. Yes, I have. And it is, it requires strategy. And I hate to make it sound so systematic, but it means that if you are on medication of any sort, utilize that medication. If there are interventions or any strategies that your doctor is given, use those. The joy piece is about being aware and conscious of where you are and being able to intervene where needed or being able to give yourself permission. I know that this is a time of year and I'm thinking seasonal depression. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work for me. So you learn how to make adjustments 
So maybe this is the time of year you do three meetings a day, or this is the time of year where in the middle of the day, I need to go for a walk. It's about that personal self-awareness and knowing that because I struggle with depression and anxiety, I'm putting these into place in advance so that I have them as tools for when these things pop up. But it, it does take practice, trial and error, and really knowing what works for you. So it sounds like if I am anxious, I develop a good strategy and practices, daily practices. You and I are talking about we work out, I do hot yoga, lots of yoga, I meditate, I walk a lot, I do my conference calls while walking. Right. So I do everything within my capacity to make sure that my physical body is cared for mm -hmm. so that I can think. And I do everything I can for mental agility so that I can show up and think and be present. And then it sounds like if I'm doing those things, it's already building the foundation for joy. And those things are all part of it. I would say the other missing piece is a community. You have people that can be in on this journey with you. And so I have within my community, I think two of them who I know have severe depression and anxiety. And we have a code word. I won't say it here because it's a profanity word. <laughs> ah, <okay. laughs> but we made it fun so that it'll jolt us out of whatever we're doing. So if I'm sitting here with you right now and that word flies across my phone, I know, okay, that's the alert. I need to check in. The community piece is almost, if you did all of those things in isolation, it'll work for so long. But at some point, you do need a community of people. It could be two people. It could be three people who can engage in this journey with you. I can't emphasize the importance of that enough. I'm thinking of two people in my life who would refer to themselves probably as having the happy gene. They're both incredibly positive. One happens to be our producer. So I get to see his smiling face all the time. Mm -hmm. And the other is my husband. So I am incredibly fortunate to have a work happy person and a home happy person. Most people don't have that. I spent most of my life not having any of those people who are just genetically happy. Yeah. I'm assuming it matters that I may have a community of people who are struggling with the same thing. Do we need to implant some that aren't struggling, who are just genetically disposed to happiness? I don't think that they need to have the quote unquote happy gene necessarily, but you all do need to have a unified mission. This is where we all are right now. And yeah, I might struggle a little bit more than what I think the average person struggles with happiness, but we have a mission and it's a unified one. So we are going to make sure that we indulge in whatever we want to parameters we want to set. Mm -hmm. So it might be about indulging in moments of joy, but it also might be about what am I going to do to eliminate the clutter and the noise and the things that take my joy away? And we check in with each other and we are committed to doing that together. But we also, to your point about maybe not having anybody in the circle that is wired that way, we're going to expose ourselves to people. I am doing this on Sunday, in fact. Um, get a group of people together and watch like masterclass and take a class together. We're doing it over wine and brunch, <laughs> you know, make it fun. And let's learn about women in leadership on masterclass. And so that's what we're doing. But exposing yourself to opportunities to learn together and glean from people who are doing it is a great way as well. But I don't think you have to only be around people who have that joy already in order to be able to create it 
together with a group of people that you trust. So that's the one end, the people who are genetically happy. Do you eliminate people or reduce them who are just consistently unhappy? The Debbie Downer kind of thing. Yes. Oh, I wish I had this quote in front of me, but it's in my book. And I said something to the extent of we are not canceling people and shutting people down. We're not eliminating people out of our lives necessarily, but we are paying attention to what they bring and we're positioning them accordingly. So it's that idea that, okay, so maybe I have a family member that is a Debbie Downer and I just can't consume their energy all of the time. I get to choose how I want to position them in my life. So maybe I will take that family member out to dinner every now and then, and then I will arm myself (laughs) with what I need in order to prepare mentally to engage. It might be that I can't engage with this family member at all on a one-on-one basis. So it's not necessarily saying I'm going to eliminate people from my life, although there are times when that does need to happen. There are people you just can't eliminate. It's about repositioning them. And it could be a mental repositioning, or it can be physically, I'm, I will not do X, Y, and Z with this person anymore. So you may not have a one-on-one brunch, but you may go to a movie where they don't talk. <laughs> exactly. I have somebody that I'm doing exactly that with. You know, it's just we, <laughs> we pick and choose the activities that we can tolerate. And why do we do it? Why do it? Because some people might say, why bother? Just eliminate them. It's an individual decision about who you want in your life and the value they have in your life and what value you want to bring into their life. Because it's not always about what people can give you. It's sometimes about where your heart is and what you want to give and contribute to other people as well. When I think of how many people during the pandemic had family members, one vaccinates, one doesn't, one wears a mask, one doesn't. Now, you may say during the pandemic, if I have a condition and I'm vaccinated and I wear a mask, you can't come over until you vaccinate and wear a mask. That may be a reasonable thing, but you may not choose to eliminate them from your life forever. It may be a pause. Boundaries, and hopefully those are respected on both sides, but that doesn't always happen. So the reality is that we have tension and conflict within our families, within the workplace, within our friendships. And so does it mean, okay, it's time for this person to go? Sometimes it has meant that. If I don't feel safe, my deal breaker in any relationship is safety. And if I don't feel safe, if I feel that I'm going to be betrayed, I can't be within close proximity to those people. This is the opening to talk about joyfully single because you're mentioning that idea that I am more able to take care of myself and to be joyful in the presence of some people and specifically away from other people. So walk me through it. Again, this is a leadership show, not a dating show. So I want to be mindful of our audience. Yeah. Single to me is one, it is a marital status. Yeah. But it's also a choice about how I live my life and invest precious hours I have. And I can choose to write books or date. From the lens of leadership, help us understand joyfully single. It's really easy to frame this within leadership Sheryl Sandberg, Mm -hmm. there was such controversy around a statement that she made about companionship status. What she said was, the person that you choose to spend the rest of your life with is the most important business decision you can ever make. When I think about it that way, I have two choices. I can be joyfully single until I make that critical decision and then move into a joyful companionship, or I can be woefully single, miserable, (laughs) 
and try to quickly get a partner because it looks better. And I feel like I have somebody by my side that can potentially destroy my trajectory career-wise. You know, I I have a friend who anytime she did presentations, she would put a wedding ring or engagement ring on her finger because she said that it made her look more legitimate as a leader to have a ring on her finger. With that mindset followed behaviors that said, I need a man by my side who looks like a professional CEO. So as soon as somebody like that approached her, regardless of all the things that were going on with them, regardless of the addictions and the the abuse and all of the things that were happening, it looked good. So when we're not joyfully single, we make decisions out of our desperation that can adversely impact our careers and our profession. Because she was in that particular relationship, it impacted her ability to do things like travel because he was very jealous or to grow her business because the expectations he had of her in the home hindered her ability to build the business that she was trying to build. I don't know why it was so controversial when she first said it, but I wholeheartedly agree. Having been in relationships in which the man that I would be dating is jealous or feels like, oh, so you think you're all that because you were on a podcast or I'm about to be on the podcast and we have this horrible fight. Now I'm shaken and I'm just not focused. It impacts. I mean, I've had that happen before I walk on stage once. So When you're joyfully single, you have, again, that baseline so that when you do enter into a relationship, you understand what it feels like to maintain that joy and you walk into your leadership position, not bleeding all over everybody. (laughs) I would extend that to who's on my leadership team. My leadership team is a partnership. Yes. I can't do it with people who aren't aligned. And I would rather have a gap. Right. The single thing Mm -hmm. than continually be in meetings where there's a bunch of blood. Yeah. And I think many of us have been in those situations where we just felt like we couldn't lose the person because they were too important. And yet the negative consequences were significant. What are you going home to every day? And how does that impact your performance as a leader, as a professional? That matters. The lines are not hard drawn between what happens in our personal lives and what happens in our professional lives. It's all seamless. You know, it's interesting as I coach executives, how often their personal life becomes a topic of coaching. And I am certainly not a dating coach. Anyone who knows my dating history would know they should never ask me those kinds of questions. Having a personal life that is generative, whether it's a roommate or puppies, whatever it is, it needs to be generative if we are to bring our best selves to the workplace. Yes. And I need more people to understand that. One of my reluctancies, if that's a word, in releasing a book called Joyfully Single is the concern that people won't see the connection between this and leadership. I'm a leadership professor. I'm a leadership scholar. I tried to be very clear in the book about how this adversely impacts the rest of your life if you don't get this joyfully single thing down. I was single for 18 years after I married a very good man, just the wrong person for me. Same. We divorced. And it took a while to be joyful and single. I was certainly single, Mm -hmm. but I took a while to really love being single. And then I I wrote 10 books rather than dating because it's amazing what you can get done when you're not dating the wrong person. Yes. And the key is the wrong person because I definitely don't want the misconception that you can't do these things 
with a partner in your life. But the right partner is everything. It changes everything. Yeah. And I had no idea how good life could be with the right partner, which is why I stayed single because I had just not seen it. Right. And that's what many of us see. I mean, if in the drama on TV, I don't even know what's on TV these days, but we don't see models of great relationships. And so that's all the more reason to dive deeply into your own joy and learn about what that means to you. Because as soon as somebody comes in and they start clouding up the place, you'll notice that. But if you're already cloudy, if you're already got all this stuff going on and then somebody else brings their stuff, it's like, oh, more stuff. And you don't notice that, no, this is actually not a very healthy situation. Pamela, how did you move to a space where you were emotionally aware enough to notice that you were unhappy, leave a marriage and develop that emotional strength that you can now say, oh, I did my three o'clock check in and I realize I'm sad. It just sounds like that's part of your routine. Did you grow up with that? Part of it is my upbringing. So I did, again, place of privilege. I had an upbringing with two parents who created a space of safety. Now, I don't know how their marriage was. They're just my parents and we didn't see anything dramatic. My dad now tells me my mom would drag him in the closet to yell at him if she wanted to have a fight. (laughs) But we never saw that, which gave me a very false sense of what a relationship should look like. Peace and never fighting and that kind of thing. But they did create a very psychologically safe home environment for us. So all of my trauma started in adulthood because the moment I stepped out of the safe space of their home, which, by the way, was because I met a guy and I got pregnant the very first time when I was 18. I was super naive. I didn't realize that people were deceiving and my pregnancy was due to a deceptive. We won't go into all that, but it was deceit that led to me being pregnant. That was my first experience really being outside of the safety of my parents' home. And after that, I learned the hard way that the world is not as safe as what I was taught. So when I got married, I didn't feel safe there, psychologically safe for the most part. There was not physical abuse. So I noticed that because of the environment I put myself in. Everybody is not going to have that background of a childhood in which you felt safe and then you're able to notice right away when you get married. That is one of the reasons why I have such strategic approaches to creating your joy and creating your safety so that once you are able to create that for yourself, then you'll be much more aware of when you step into a situation where it doesn't exist. So if you didn't have it in childhood, there is a possibility to create it for yourself. And I've seen it happen. So that was my childhood that enabled me to see it in my marriage. But I didn't have all of the mental awareness that I have now. I went to life coach training. It was life coach training at the time, shortly after I got divorced. And diving into the world of coaching was so eye-opening for me. Mindfulness, effective communication, listening, building relationships. That's what really changed my life and enabled me to now fast forward 14 years later to be sitting on my porch and saying, I feel sad. (laughs) Part of it was the childhood, but the actual practical intellectual understanding of what's happening inside of me honestly came through my leadership studies and my coaching training. So it's not magical. It's not that you were just born with it. No, it's definitely not magical. It takes work and you have to fight for it. It sounds so unglamorous and unromantic that you actually have to fight for joy, but you do and it's worth it. It sounds reasonable. Because other than my two joyful people in my life, everybody else I know 
works hard at it. Yeah. And maybe they work harder at it than I see. Even the joyful people in your life, because I'm the I'm that person in most people's lives that I know, and they have no idea the daily battle of making sure that I'm okay and being okay with days that I'm not okay. Being okay with, if I feel sad, feel it. Know where it's coming from and being okay with that. But I also hear something else. It's okay to be sad and don't project it and don't dump it on other people. That I'm sad in my own time, in my own space. And when I join a collective space, it's my responsibility to at least be neutral. Or depending on the group you're with, being honest and saying, yeah, this is a rough day. But if you're at work and you're in a meeting and part of one of the things I do is with the Institute of Coaching, I'm probably not going to show up to an Institute of Coaching meeting and say, I don't feel great today. Somebody said something rude to me at eight this morning. (laughs) Yeah. So everything isn't for everybody. But after that meeting, I might find my outlet and might might find my crew and send them that SOS text because you do need to release somewhere, but not everywhere. To amplify that, my point was so often people are unconscious and that negativity is contagious. Yes. They walk in feeling whatever unpleasant emotion and it just spews or passive aggressive or whatever the thing is. And if we're not self-aware and self-managing, it becomes somebody else's problem too. Yes, absolutely. Then we become the joy thief. (laughs) There's a book on my shelf now called The Dark Side of Joy. And that's when we find our pleasure in other people's downfall so that they can be where we are or we can rise above them because we have now seen them sink down. So it's our turn to rise now. We see a lot of that. Can you give our listeners top five recommendations for finding and building their own joy, mental stamina? Okay, so you asked me about five ways. I would say that overarching these five ways, you want to make sure that you have a community. That's going to be key because they're going to help you integrate these into your life. But one of the things that I've developed is this idea of perspectives of joy. And that's really how do we build joy into our lives? How do we see joy? How do we integrate it into what we do? And the first one is the experience of joy. So intentionally creating joyful experiences. And so whatever that is, I will turn music on and dance in here in between meetings, you know, whatever it takes for you. It's yoga. You know, what experiences am I going to create? The next one is the emotion, recognizing how you physiologically respond to situations and enabling yourself to just release emotions of joy. There's a lot of people who feel shameful to express too much joy because maybe other people aren't feeling it. Maybe it's not a part of your family culture or your workplace culture, but being willing to show those emotions actually yields and creates even more joy. So I would say dive into opportunities to share, watch a movie that just brings you joy. You know, Um, The other one is the ethos, and this is a part of your personality and who you are as a person. And what can you do to further develop your just everyday approach to life in a way that exudes joy? So I can sit outside and look at the stars. I have an app on my phone that allows me to see which planets there are. Just as a general appreciation for the world that's around me, as a part of my ethos, I don't take any of this for granted. I find joy in it. The fourth one is your expression. And so this is how do I outwardly demonstrate that I'm experiencing joy? So when you see somebody that you love and you care about, 
being willing to throw your arms around them and say, oh my gosh, I'm so happy for you. I love you. Again, that's another area in which we are often stifled. It's not cool to do that in some settings. So how do you expose yourself to more settings that allow you to do that? And then the fifth one is really, again, building that community that nurtures your ability to engage in these other four, the experience, the emotion, the ethos, and the expression of joy. There's a lot of different ways to do that within the professional and personal realm. And you've got to find ways that resonate with your values and who you are as a human being. I love the idea that I can, and in many cases, do those now as a leader of an organization. And I would say even the leader of a department of an organization, we can create the ethos where we celebrate each other, where we find something that's happening during the day that we thank people. And that really does seem also contagious. Absolutely. And it doesn't have to be things that don't feel natural. Say we're going to create a simulated play date for the colleagues today. (laughs) But it's something that can be woven into the everyday fabric of what we do and who we are as a company. Just saying thank you. Thank you. You did that thing really well. Yeah. And hopefully we're all working with people who are doing good work that we can express rather than the attitude of I'm supposed to thank you for coming to work. I should actually thank you for your work. And it's valid, though, to even thank somebody for coming to work. Thank you for showing up every day. Thank you for being here. Because there are people who might struggle every day just to get there. So even for the little things, I think can evoke joy. Beautiful. Pamela, thank you. Where would people learn more about your podcast, your book, your research, and your companies? My podcast is called The Joy Whisperer. So if you go to thejoywhisperer.org, That'll take you to all the things, (laughs) the companies, everything is at thejoywhisperer.org. Thank you. We really appreciate you. And to our listeners, please take advantage of Pamela's content. Go to the Joy Whisperer. We're living in such difficult times. For many people, it is difficult to get up and get to work in the morning or take care of some basics. Creating places to help folks find their joy elevates all of us. So please like us, share us, give positive comments, give us joy. 